Hey there, you've pressed play on the world's top podcast for track and field coaches. Welcome to the Gill Athletics Track and Field Connections. The show is brought to you by Gill Athletics, empowering coaches with innovative equipment since 1918. Head on over to gillathletics.com for all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, and it is my pleasure to bring you another amazing coach and share their journey with you. Our goal is to connect you with the amazing people who have chosen the coaching profession, and today's guest is a powerful example of the impact a coach makes on our world. Let's get to it. The starter has called us to the start line. It's showtime. Hey, thanks again for joining us. We're just so happy you would uh, join us again here on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast, bringing you guests around the world. And this one, I had to go real, real far. I had to go um, a couple hours north on 57. <laughs> Help me welcome, uh, you know, long time, famed. I've known you for a long time. Don't roll your eyes, uh, but help me welcome uh, Mr. Jim Canadal. Jim, how are you, sir? Good. It's a great day. It's beautiful out here. I live right on Lake Michigan, and it's a beautiful sight right out my window. This is like a perfect time for that, right? The leaves are changing. I mean, it is literally gorgeous, right? This is what yeah, oh, yeah. are made of. It looks of. nice. Yeah, That's, sailboats out there, everything. Uh, oh, sailboats. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. I, I live by a little lake, Lake of the Woods, so I don't, I don't have sailboats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of a lot of fishing trips with my kid, though, man. He, he does the fishing. He wants to fish Lake Michigan next time we're up that way, so yeah. we'll to, maybe we'll have to stop by the Canadian residence and... Uh, <laughs> See, this is how I get myself invited to people's houses. I just say my kids want to go. That's that's the whole reason I started the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jim, uh, excited for you to join us here today. You've got a really rich uh, his, history of track and field with your different coaching stops. And, uh, you know, I've always known you as the Illinois guy and, you know, UIC and stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, really some other interesting uh, stops on your journey. Uh, mm -hmm. Why don't we get started? Why don't you take us back where you kind of grew up and when did track become a a thing for you and, and how'd that get started? Well, you know, I was, I'm originally from Iowa city uh, and, and I ended up going to school there, but when we grew up, I have four, three brothers and we played sports all the time. We played basketball, football, baseball, track. Um, I always remember in, I went out for football as a freshman in high, I mean, a seventh grader in junior high. And I got hit once, and that was the end of my career. Uh, I, I, I'm a good catcher, but I'm not a good absorber of punishment. Uh, I went out for basketball the next year. I can't shoot. Uh, I went out the third year. I went out for baseball. I, I can catch, but I can't hit. I'm, so I'm good defense, but no. So track became my sport. And I actually didn't start in track until my junior year of high school because we were from a family, a family of seven. My dad was a fireman. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so I had to have a job all the time. So I remember I worked until I was through my sophomore year of high school. I always had a job. I worked when I was 14, you know. Wow. And uh, finally I had to, I said, that's it. I got to play sports because I was a, I was, a, I don't want to say a natural runner, but we always did stuff like my mom said, run to the grocery store. You ran to the grocery store. Uh, if we had swim lessons, we had to bike to the city park to go swimming. So I was very aerobic. And I think naturally I discovered at a young age that I was a good runner. Uh, it wasn't anything I tried. It just was. Uh, not that I was a great runner, but at right. the time I was good. So that's that's how I got involved in that. But it is, I mean, my 
two younger brothers were actually collegiate Iowa athletes at Iowa. I, I competed at Iowa. Uh, my younger brother was a 7'4 high jumper. And my youngest brother was only a 6'10 high jumper. Wow. Um, what, so, what, what is your high jump PR? 5'8". <laughs> See, a 7, a 6, and a 5. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, we were like, even though we were the same type of builds, we're from two halves of the family. I have a lot of endurance. I always had a lot of endurance. I never had much spring at all. Um, we started like my brother, my next younger brother, Bill, he went to school at Iowa too. He, um, in high school, he was 6'3". He could out jump any center in the state, any center. Um, he could hit his head to the rim. He could jump that high on a run, obviously, but he had good spring. But uh, I didn't have any spring, and so the mile was a natural for me. But uh, so we got, you know, I got involved in sports not until my, not seriously, because when I was in junior high, they kept cutting me. So that was, that was into that. Uh, you know, I feel like Michael Jordan, but I never had that step up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just stayed there. Um, but in track, I was good. I mean, right away, I remember the first time I ran the two mile in high school, I set the school record. Uh, it wasn't very good. I, I'd be embarrassed to tell you right now, but at the time it was a school record. So yeah, uh, I, I, I could tell that was a direction I could go. And uh, so we, you know, we started out in high school and I had a good experience my junior year and my senior year um, and, you know, did cross country and track. Uh, and I, I think until my senior year in high school, I never really thought about running in college, but I had a good enough career that I that could, I went as a walk on in Iowa and, uh, you know, had a great four years and enjoyed a lot. And it's one of those experiences that I always think to myself, it was a, it was a probably one of the most profound decisions I ever made because so often we, we, you know, just do things idly. And I, I think in a way, when I started running cross country, I thought, Oh, this coach sucks, but it's, you know, you realize there's something there that, that, uh, you know, he, he sees something in me that I don't see in myself. And so I stuck with it and became better and better and better. But I've, I've saved my high school training uh, guide from, you know, I was in high school from 67 to 70. I uh, saved that. I still have all that stuff. And sometimes I think I was lazy. I, I don't think I did as much as I did. But when I look back at what I did, it's like, wow, when I was 17 years old, I was running 12 miles a day and stuff, you know, things like that. Yeah. And this is back in, you know, 68, 69. So it was a different time. And it was uh, weird to be able to to see how much I did. Um, it was still a big step up. I think part of the, when I look back at my high school career, that was probably the impetus for some of my book that uh, we may talk about, but um, it was it was a start to career. And I think it was, I, I'd never been a great, I enjoyed sports, but I was never a great athlete. And I think that's what I love about track and cross country. Now, knowing you grew up there, was it always a given whether you were gonna be a nine minute two miler or a 19 minute two miler? By the way, that's more closer to my PR. Uh, <laughs> was it always a given you were gonna go to Iowa? Was that kind of the, like if you're gonna go to school, if you're gonna go to college, you're gonna go to the University of Iowa? Pretty, pretty much because I grew up, you know, in the era of, uh, I mean, we were, some of my classmates were sons of, and one daughter of football coaches. I mean, tennis coach, you know, we, li I lived, all my classmates were, uh, involved in sport, their parents were involved in sports. And so it was a natural to go there. And I didn't really look any other place. It was a, it was a time I'm, like I said, I'm from a family of seven. And so just to go to college when you had parents that didn't go to college, it was a big deal. And I think yeah. it was practical at the time. It was, 
you know, when you look back at how much you paid for tuition, I can remember this, I don't know why, it was $315 a semester and there was no student fees. And if you spent $20 on books, you had a heart attack. Uh, so uh, we just had uh, Ron Alice on the podcast and he told us a story, uh, same kind of sort of time frame uh, when he was at Long Beach State University, he got Dwight uh, Stones, Stones. To, to, to jump and he, you know, he came in uh, just for the spring semester. So it was a one semester scholarship. And he said it was $900 for everything because he said it was the best $900 he's ever invested. You know, he got the, uh, you know, a seven plus, you know, automatic you know, Olympian. He was the national champ for him, of course, right off the bat. But I was, you know, while $900 was a great investment, I kept thinking, holy cow, $900 for everything. You mm -hmm. can't get your books for $900. No, that's pretty wow. close. Yeah, we, we need to get back to more of that. Then we can get more educated people. That, we'll change the world by doing that. But uh, I digress. Uh, so how was your experience at Iowa running? And who was your coach there? Well, I had two coaches. Um, I had Francis Kressmeyer my first two years because I was distant. Uh, and then I had Ted Wheeler afterwards. And it was it was quite an experience, quite a contrasted styles. Kretz, we called him Kretz. Uh, he was of an era, just to give you an idea, I always think this is an interesting story. Kretz in 1935, you may have heard of me in Michigan where Jesse Owens uh, tied three world records. Of course. And, and I mean, set three world records and tied it. Kretz was in the ra one of the races. And he always told the story. Wow. So this is how far back I stretch. He told the story. He was at the ferry field for the meet. Um, the world record in the 200, I think, 220, I think it was low hurdles, mm -hmm. was 23 flat. Kretz ran 22.9, and he said, guess what? I was second. Jesse Owens beat him. Wow. Uh, I have a picture, autographed picture of Kretz in that race, and you can tell it's my coach running the race. And he's right like a half step behind Jesse Owens, and Jesse beat him. You never uh, think, you know, we always talk about Jesse, and of course we should. I mean, what he's done and, uh, you know, what he did, it was amazing. You never think about the guy that got second and the, <laughs> there had to be an eighth place in that race. <laughs> no, and, and you know, the other half of that is Kretz was, he, he's, they don't keep these type of records anymore, but he was the big 10. He had the big 10 record in most points scored in a season. They don't do that anymore. It's kind of oh, an yeah. animated thing, but um, he never won a big 10 title. So he scored more points and meets than, than Jesse Owens ever did, but he never won a big 10 title. And Kretz was an all American numerous times but never won a big 10 title because of jesse owens are their exact same age they wow. were just weeks apart and so it was interesting when uh we were drake realis one year and jesse owens was there and chris introduced and they, and they talked like they were good friends and i thought oh my god you know jesse owens yeah yeah I against him. Uh, and they were real good real close friends uh but it was it was a different era when um Kretz used to come to, he wore a sport, sport coat and tie to meets. He smoked cigarettes. And so when we went to meets and I remember this and, and we'd go on a, back then you'd go on a station wagon with uh, seven athletes and the coach. Um, he would roll down the window while we were going to meet and smoke cigarettes and blow smoke out the window. Uh, it was a different, you know, a different era. You don't see that anymore. Uh, so that's changed. But I also, the other half of it, the last two years, Ted Wheeler, he was a 52, 1952 and 1956 Olympian in the 1500 meters. Uh, best he made was semifinals, which is pretty dang good. 
Uh, he used to go out to the, he would run with us. He was like, when he was in his forties, he would run with us on some of the workouts and he would run with us out for golf course. And I can remember during workouts, he would bum a cigarette from a golfer and he would smoke the cigarette while we were doing intervals around the, 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 the cross country course. What? Uh, yes. So it, it was very, very interesting. I mean, kids, Today wouldn't have any association at all with any smokers. No. And I had two coaches that were smokers. So like it, was, it would, you know, I go to track meets around the country. If I were at Drake Relays and, you know, I'm talking to a coach and he just lights up, I'd be like, wait a minute, maybe you're not a coach then. You must be a parent because what in the world are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> That'd yeah. be the strangest thing in the world to see. No, it, it, it was. It was. And, and you know, but it was a – we have, we just had a middling team in Iowa. We had some, a lot of athletes from Illinois that are on the team. Uh, I mean, Jim Doherty, Tom Lachelle, uh, no, I'm trying to think some of the cross country guys, but, but I mean, we, we relied on Illinois athletes a lot when we were at Iowa because it, Iowa's old population is only two and a half million and you have that many in the city of Chicago. So right. it's changed quite a bit, but, um, and it was, it was an interesting era because I always think when I was running in college, kids don't think of it this way. But Gary Bjorklund, we used to run dual meets with Gary Bjorklund racing. We had dual meets against Craig Virgin and the rest of the team, uh, Mike Durkin, the rest of the team, yeah. um, uh, Ken Popejoy, uh, Leela Beatty. Um, wow. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, there were, there were guys, uh, Glenn Harrell from uh, Skip Kent. I mean, so you would run against Olympians all the time. Wins and Reed. Would I have I run against Mark Wins and Reed? Yes, a million times. Uh, so it was a lot, of, but I always, I remember when I see guys, I always joke, cause like I tell them to turn around. I said, oh, that's the only part of you I recognize is the back of your head. Cause I never <laughs> was in front of you. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of good athletes. I mean, it really wasn't. So it was, it was a different era cause you ran dual meets. We, I would say in cross country, we had maybe triangulars, but there was no such thing as invitational ever. We never went to, in all my four years of college, I never went to invitational. It was always like, so it's a different type of feel now when kids go to big meets on weekends. Uh, we never had that at all. So uh, it's it's a struggle. Uh, you probably went to Drake Relays was probably your big invitational on a yearly basis for track. Very much so. I mean, Drake Relays were, uh, you know, it was the most wonderful thing I ever saw. I, I, I can, I'll tell you a story and this is true. And this is, I use this in my book. Um, in 1970, my younger brother and I were dropped off in the interstate in Iowa City uh, at seven in the morning, and, and we hitchhiked, my brother and I hitchhiked to Des Moines, and we used to hold up a sign that had DM. I remember we put DM on it. We'd hold, and we, my mom would, fine, my mom's conservative. We would hitchhike. We always got a ride within 15 minutes. They dropped us off at 31st Street. We walked to Drake Stadium, uh, so maybe four or five blocks, and uh, watched the the NCAA championships in 1970, and I saw the famous scene where Steve Prefontaine cut his foot uh, before the meet. I was at that. That's the NCAA wow. championships in 1970. So one of the things, and I, I I changed this in the bit in the book, but I remember after the race, he he went around the stadium. And he was holding his shoes in his hand, and you could see the blood on his foot because he had like gauze around his foot, and it was just red. You could see the blotchy red. I remember it distinctly because like. Uh, uh, and I reached out to slap his hand and he missed my hand. 
I thought I, I, I could have said I slapped hands with Steve Prefect and I just couldn't reach far enough. I couldn't get him. So that was my uh, the story with that. But I mean, we saw uh, I saw Jan Johnson win a probably the only NCAA title outdoor title indoors because it was raining. So I drank. I'm shocked. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right there. But uh, yeah, so it was it was a big, big meet. And to qualify for the Drake Relays for any event in high school as a high schooler was huge, huge, huge. I mean, yeah. that was uh, that was the uh, era of Jim Duncan and, uh, you know, a lot of I saw probably mm, one, two, three world records at the, uh, you know, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot just at Drake, but I mean, uh, I have seen quite a bit and it's interesting to see how much I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and just maybe think of world records. I was at a meet last weekend. Uh, Jim Spivey coaches at Latin. He helps with the Latin team in cross country. And I, I was, I've seen 11 world records in person. I've been there and watched 11 world records. And I saw, so I was going to Jim. Well, Jim, how many, how many world records have you seen? And he goes, well, I was in four world records myself in four world. You know, he didn't set them, but I thought, oh my gosh, that's a pretty good seat. Uh, so it, it was quite an amazing meet. But I, but you know, it, Drake has changed so much because it was era of Jim Duncan in a sunken football field. I don't know if you remember that it used to be a sunken football field. Um, so actually, people's heads were at track level. And it was down below, so it was a little bit different. But they had the old timing stands you remember they had judges it must have been 15 feet high where the judges timing judges would on a, on a stand that would go up like a like stairs i guess right. I would it. and it had to be 15 feet high and so they, they have like three on every single row of, and you had that so they had 24 uh timers up there uh just a different era uh, and then and so that drake was by far that was bigger than the state meet no question because you qualified that you were good I find it fascinating that you hitchhiked to Des Moines and in today's world where, so, you know, there was no connectivity to you. You were on your own. No one would know if you went to Des Moines, if they took you somewhere else and who you're with and all that kind of stuff. And in today's cell phone, GPS, text messaging, social media world, we would know where you are, where literally where you are at any second. And yet I hesitate to think that any parent would allow their child to do what to do what you did <laughs> they'd be like no you're crazy you're not doing it call, call an uber <laughs> and it's the amazing thing is my mother is is the least she couldn't be less a risk taker she is not she would never do anything so that's how comfortable we felt but we and, and we did the same we actually had, a, had an uncle who lived in des moines and we stayed with him and then uh slept overnight and then went back the, the next day but um uh, yeah, we we just walked. I I'm still never. We walked out to back onto the interstate through Des Moines and hitchhiked back home. That's how we got home. That cracks me up. Yeah. Well, so while you're at Iowa uh, during your undergrad years, what were you studying? What did you think you were going to become professionally? And was coaching even a thought at that point? You know, I I, I was a phys ed major. Um, the that was the start, and it was kind of a natural thing. I started as a teacher in high school, but I always knew that I wanted to be a coach. I knew that from a real young age. I mean, I, it's like I, I used to work with my, I, I always forget stuff like this, but I taught my younger brother and sister to play tennis. I taught my three youngest siblings to ride their bike. Uh, and I'm only like 
three or four years older than some of them. So it's not a big age gap, but I was, I was a natural born teacher. It was something that I enjoyed quite a bit. And so I enjoyed, we had a great uh, biomechanics. I don't know if you would have heard of Jim Hay. He wrote uh, biome biomechanics supports athletics. Jim Hay, there was Jeffrey Tyson, which is the grandfather, that guy, he's from England. He, he was, cause I heard Bob talk about some names now, current Bob Thurnoffer, talk about current names now. And, um, this guy was, uh, he wrote books like in 1950s, so they were old, older books, but he's, he's Jeffrey Dyson's son mechanic, so he was uh, the most knowledgeable, but we had him on campus. I had Jim Hay, who was probably, he was the uh, national sports biomechanist for the United States. Um, he's dead now, but uh, I had a great uh, physiology instructor, and I'm going blank at his name. <laughs> he, he's dead, so he won't know that I can't remember his name. But, uh, you know, I had some great, great teachers and it was just like a wonderful experience. And so I, I, I thought that this would be something I could do. And I, I started out in high school. You know, it's funny how you started in career and we talked a little bit before. Uh, my first coaching job was coaching uh, eighth grade football, seventh grade girls basketball. Now, I, I played football in seventh grade. I didn't have a clue. Yeah, I was wondering. I didn't, I didn't know how you start practice. Um, and then I had girls basketball, eighth graders, and they were, I, I'm, I'm surprised I'm not an alcoholic from that day. Uh, <laughs> I, so you, you get a career like that. But I knew I wanted to coach regardless. Um, and I enjoyed it. I, you know, I've coached um, golf too. Another, another story. Have you ever played, do you play golf? Uh, you know, I wouldn't call what I do okay. golf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, but I, um, I, I played. We played at a, a Mid Prairie, which is south of Iowa City. Uh, we had a sand golf course. You're playing on sand greens. Okay, no. a sand green is is like a flat sand trap that you have a pin. Uh, they have a a path, a runway that you they they use a they drag it so it's flat and level. Um, so every, every time you all chip into the green, the ball just dies because it's landing in sand. Yeah. Um, there's a string in the pin. You walk the ball around to the runway across the green, and then you pull a pin and then you putt. Well, the one thing that's nice about it is you can see how it breaks exactly. So if you're the first one, the longest one, the people behind you can see exactly how the ball, cause it leaves a trail in the sand. Mm. Uh, so it was, that was my first uh, coaching spirits. I, I, I play golf, but I'd never coached golf. I didn't know, I had no idea what to do. Uh, so that was my start. I, I remember I did a good enough job, but when they did a shot, you've heard of a shotgun start in golf. I don't know if you ever have. Oh, shotgun. Shotgun. They started every single hole. Well, in, in Iowa, they literally get a shotgun and they shoot it on the air. They don't say start at, you know, this time they just shoot a shotgun and you start playing. Uh, so that was the first time I never realized that expression was literally fire a shot to start up. So it was a little bit of experience. But yeah, I started out, you know, coaching was always what I had in mind. And I I got my first job uh, in, we, uh, we lived in Des Moines at the time. My first job was at Simpson College. And it was, you know, I always think it's interesting to see where people start because it's not glamorous. I, I get, over the years, I've had a lot of, and you would know too, a lot of athletes who want to start at, you know, 
Auburn or that's not going to happen. You're going to start it. And Simpson College at the time was uh, not much. I mean, it was, we had probably, I was a women's coach there. We probably had 11, 12 women on the team. My office was in the lobby of the athletic facility. I sat at, the, at a lounge uh, and used the coffee table and that's where I did all my work from. So I didn't <laughs> even have an office. And I was paid $1,500, I remember, over a year. Um, you know, we would take sack lunches to meets, uh, boys and girls, the men and women would travel together. Um, you know, it was, it was a great experience because it, it, it made me do everything right off the bat. I think some of the problems with a lot of young coaches is they have such a narrow band of experience and it's better to be doing everything and then whittle it down rather than the other way around. What years was this at Simpson? You know, I would say late 70s. Um, I, I'm bad on years. I would say if I had to guess, I'd say 78, 79 and there somewhere in there. Um, twice. Now he was after me, but he went to Simpson College. Um, you know, I even think Bruce Jenner is a good example. I, I I remember when I think of Drake, Bruce Jenner, I mean, I knew him from 1974, 75 in there. He he was a good athlete. I remember he was really, really talented. I could tell he was going to be an Olympian because uh, he would win the Drake Relays and he was, there wasn't anything he couldn't do very well. He was a so-so pole vaulter, but he got real good quickly. So he improved a lot. But but those Iowa colleges in there, there are a lot of, you know, uh, Simpson, Central, Wartburg, uh, a lot of Iowa colleges were in there. And it was a good experience because I, I got a chance to do recruiting. I got a chance to do, you know, coach every event. Um, I coached events. I never didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, and and this was an era where you were just starting to get floppers in there. You, you always saw when I started out, uh, give you an idea how my brothers got started in track. We used to spade the garden. We used to get two, like it was trim on the edging of the roof in your house. I can't, don't, can't think what it's called. But anyway, we would pound that into the, the garden. We would get a string and put it across pegs and we would high jump and we had to do scissors because you couldn't do flop. You would have been dead. All right. <laughs> and that's actually how my brother, my brother was one of the last uh, straddle high jumpers. If he had ever, um, if they ever ranked the, the highest all time straddle high jumper, he was probably like 15th of all time ever uh, straddle high jumper. So he went pretty high. I mean, now the record's eight feet. So he's a million miles for that. But at the time he was ranked in the world with a seven four. So uh, it's, uh, pretty it's interesting. You're, I was going to ask you this about your coaching football and basketball, but you, you mentioned this at Simpson coaching other events that you had never not only coach because you're, you know, you're a rookie coach essentially at this point, but obviously yeah. never competed in as you were more of a distance no. runner. So how did you take on that challenge, whether it was the football, you'd never, I'm going to say you never played and, you know, didn't know the X's and O's, if you will, didn't even know how to start a practice. How did you figure out, like, what, what was your method to like, okay, well, I'm, I'm in it. I am the coach. So how do I mm -hmm. coach football or how do I coach this new event shot put? I've never done this take us through what your thought was there. Were you intimidated or what resources did you use? Well, it was, I, I, I'm a voracious reader. And so I would make a point to read a lot of as many books as I can, but I, I had great, like Jim Hay, who I mentioned was a biomechanist. He taught at Iowa. 
we, he, he would, he went through all sports and he would teach you mechanically why you had to do things. And so, for example, um, like in the flop, I was Flossberry flop. When you arch over the bar, you're over the bar like this. The only way you can make your feet go up is if your head go up because there's an opposite action reaction. And so I always used that when I thought about stuff. And so I, I thought mechanically first, even if I didn't know what I was doing, I thought mechanically because I, I watch today, I watch pitchers, I watch golfers, I watch any sport and I can tell them what they're doing wrong because I look at the mechanics of what they're doing. But that that's how I got to initially. We didn't have the uh, amount of books that we have and videos and uh, it was tough. I mean, just to give you an idea, uh, later on down the road when I was coaching, I used to take an eight millimeter film of an hold, hold on you, now a good portion of our listeners have no idea they've heard of a like they've heard of a movie called eight millimeter <laughs> but they don't know what eight millimeter film is now what you're describing is that old school scene in the movie with the uh, the reel on one side and the reel on the other and the you know it, for some reason in every movie it always ends and flick flick flick, flick you know no one stops yes. in the middle of a movie anymore yeah, so yeah. you were taking eight millimeter film the canisters Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so uh, you what you would do is you would take eight millimeter because we had a camera uh, and I take the film, film it, send it to Minneapolis because that was the only place that I could send it to that was close. And they would send it back like four or five days later. So you get so now you could use your phone. Then it would take us 10 days to get a video. Film. Wow. I don't think I realized that. I don't know why. I think I assumed when you filmed. You could then go take it to the machine and just automatically it still had to be processed yeah just like you develop a picture same exact same thing interesting so, so it was very demanding the other thing i had is and dr hay had this it was called a graph check camera and it would take eight consecutive polaroid shots and so you could set the timing in between the shots so if you were doing the high jump you would time it so you get the last maybe four steps and you could do that or pole vault, you could get the plant and the up over the bar. And so graph check was nice. That was like a huge advance. That was probably late seventies. So you could pull just like a Polaroid, uh, you know, and shake it out. And I, I always think shake it like a Polaroid. Uh, that's exactly what you did. You shook it like a Polaroid. Uh, and so we, we went through that. And, and so we could have an instantaneous picture. And it was like, oh my God, that was, huge is that the same you know i've seen the like gidrut the hurdler you know the series and it was always like three or four panels is that the kind of the exactly same technology what it was exactly what it was in fact bill bergen uh at iowa state because that, that was one of my stops uh he actually used film and cut out every third frame and he made a a book you could fan and it would show an action so you could see each frame and look at it and study it and you could fan it and then actually see it in full motion. So that reminds uh, me of the, the Duncan Atwood books. He has a lot of those foot books. Mm -hmm. I think it's exactly what he calls them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so you've got, you're bitten by the bug, if you will, at Simpson, you're a coach. You, you are a coach now. Uh, we're take us through the next steps. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, you know, I was, I was at uh, 
you know, uh, Simpson for just one year. And then after that, I, I went to grad school because I knew I wanted to be a college coach that I wanted. Simpson, now I'm not saying anything against Simpson. It's a great school. But at the time, it wasn't a place to end up at. It was a place you started and moved on. And so I went to grad school at Iowa State and worked with Bill Bergen. Uh, Bill Bergen was a great, great, great coach, great mentor. I mean, if I think of, and you could say this yourself, if I think of some of the the most influential mentor I had in my career, Bill Bergen was one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, very meticulous, very uh, hardworking, very thorough. Um, he just did a wonderful, wonderful job. Now, when he started, I think he was coaching maybe in the late 70s is when he started Iowa State. Iowa State was a terrible program. They just weren't doing very well. And within just by 1981, they were Big A champs, and it was Big A, not Big 12. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Big A champs. And Iowa State was, they had a good, good team. He had some, some foreign athletes uh, that were phenomenal. He had a great, great bunch. I mean, he had David Career, who probably ran 148, something like that, and 800. Uh, he had so many good athletes. I mean, down the road, he had uh, Ubesan Diki, who set the world record in the 5,000 meters. Maybe it's 10,000 meters, I'm thinking. Uh, so phenomenal. I mean, Bob Fabrique, who runs the Van Damme meet in, in Belgium. Uh, he had so many good athletes, but Bill was, he, I, I, I couldn't um, thank him enough for all the work he did because he gave me the opportunity to coach all the jumpers. So I coached the triple jump, the long jump, the high jump, and the pole vault. Interesting. Um, you know, and again, one of my friends in college was Dave Nielsen. So I used to help him free time. Dave was a great guy. So I, I caught a step. I didn't know anything about pole vault, but he said, just catch my step and catch my step. So I do that all the time because uh, he had to vault after our practice. So I'd stick around and help him. And he say, OK, watch my left arm. Or, well, actually, for him, it's his right arm. He's left handed. But I mean, so you'd pick up stuff. And so I learned the pole vault from him. Uh, I learned the high jump from my brother. Uh, my brother also long jumps. So I, so I knew quite a bit about the long jump. And then triple jump, that's what I did my master's thesis on at Iowa State. Interesting. Yeah, so we had, uh, I still have the. Uh, chance to do stuff that I had just done a little bit of, and it gave me a chance to do a lot of it of. And so it, uh, it was a great, great learning experience. So you you cut out there a little bit. Go back. You said you had your um, your master's thesis was in triple jump, and you said I still have, and it cut out there. Start right there with I still have. Oh, I still have the 16 millimeter film from that. So there were guys like uh, Sanya Wallaby, um, who was from Kansas State. I mean, we probably in the Big Eight championships at the time we probably had four of the top ten athletes in the nation. And so I got to film all these guys, and it was a great experience in a, a, to be able to write my thesis on some of the best athletes in the nation. But it was uh, it was quite an experience, and I even got a picture after the meet. That was the first time Iowa State won the Big A title, and I still have the, on the end of the video is the team throwing him in the steeplechase. <laughs> so I nice. actually he used that um, video for some of the stuff they used. So it's, it's so it's a it's a strange thing, but it was a you know he 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 raised money um, for the program. I mean he used to donate money. Bill Bergen's a millionaire, I'm sure. There aren't many coaches, college coaches that are millionaires. He's a millionaire because uh, he he's got involved in videos. He was one of the first two first 
coaches to do videos of Bobby Knight, uh, Coach Krzyzewski. He he did all those, oh, noodles, wow. everyone. So he was the first that ever did it. And so as a result, he, he made a lot of money. But he was a great businessman, a great recruiter, a, a great sense of humor. He he could do uh, he could do straight face and just be pulling like he would get reporters come in from the student newspaper, and he used to introduce me as the athletic director at Iowa State University. Well, I was only you know 22 years old. I obviously wasn't I, the athletic director, but he would say you know what and what are you thinking? He'd use I can't think of what it was the 80th time, but he would do stuff like that all the time, or uh, uh, you know just out to. So he was a great guy. It was a great, great experience. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, it was, he, he the program were, is, is where they are today because of him. So And where did, uh, so you got your grad uh, master's degree. We're losing the video a little bit. Yeah, you got your master's degree. Where, so where was the first I don't call it first job. Simpson was the first job. Where was the job? First postmasters track coaching job. Well, I actually got it. I, I was, I lived in Des Moines at the time and I, and I got the job at uh, a assistant job at Drake initially the first year. And again, this is a something for young coaches. I volunteered the first year. That's I, I had nothing. My wife had a good job and so I could afford to do it. Um, but I, I think too many, and there's, there's resources where you live. You know, if you're in a big city, but you've got to take advantage of it. And I, I didn't want to work for nothing at Drake University, but that's the way it was. So I actually, I was a substitute teacher and I coached in the afternoon. But um, I was then, I got the next year, I got an assistant job as the, the, at Drake University. And then I still remember, it, it's funny how jobs turn over. I can remember one fall, um, I got a call, we had an office, we only had one phone in the office, got a call and the athletic director said, could you send the coach, the head coach over to my office? I said, okay. So I said, she wants you to talk to you. So I sent him over, he came back about 10 minutes later and said, I was fired and she wants to talk with you. And I'm thinking like, oh my God. Oh no. I'm gonna be fired too. Right. <laughs> and so I, I, go, I go over and I, and I talk with her and she said, how would you like to be head coach? Oh, like, that's awkward. Oh yes, exactly. Uh, Very awkward. And I was 20 years old, 28 years old. And I thought, ooh, um, you know, and, and so I said, can you give me an hour or two to think about it? I, I didn't know what else to say. So I had to go over and talk to the head coach and said, what do you think? And he goes, I'll take the job. And so that's how I got my first job. Um, well, good, good for him because he could have been yes. bitter and said, you yeah. know, you don't want to work for someone like that, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty selfless of them to say, hey, man, this is an opportunity for you. Take it and see what happens. You may not like it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was you know, sometimes you just get lucky. And I think uh, when we're young, we, I don't say we expect it, but we think it's just going to go on and on and on like that. Um, and I was fortunate because I had five All-Americans at Drake. And as a young coach, here's another good example as a young coach. You think it's, only gonna get so if I got five when I'm 20 years old, I'm gonna have 105. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it, life doesn't always work like that. I was talking with a with a coach, Kevin Gummerson, who coaches Manuka uh, here in Illinois, and I said, Kevin, uh, he was state champion, no, about three years ago in cross country. They did a good job, and I said, Kevin, like, 
enjoy it while you have it because you may have good teams, but you may never have a team this good again. Uh, and, and you just don't know that. And so, you know, I, I go crazy, act, you know, treat it like it's something special because it is something special. I, I agree I with that. What, uh, whether I learned a, from that. You know. I, I agree, whether it's a team title, a state title, a conference championship, a national championship, an All-American, uh, those are special. I know it seems like sometimes they just, they grow on trees, so to speak. But uh, I remember, I've told this story before, at, um, a couple of years ago at the Indoor National Championships uh, at Texas A&M, Oregon's women won by some ungodly number, 20, 30 points. Like, quote unquote, like if you just look at the point total, they ran away with it. And I remember talking to Robert Johnson, the head coach, and I was like, hey, man, I know the score shows that it was 30, but these aren't easy. Like they're, it wasn't until way late into the meet. Like I think it actually might've been the 3000, which is right by, uh, before the four by four where, yeah. where he locked it, locked it in. And, uh, and it was like, you know, it was still touch and go, man. It was, there was no, it wasn't like basketball where, you know, it's a hundred to zero. It's like, okay, well, we're going to win this one. Each one is special and you'd never know if the next one's going to come, you oh, can no. think you do. How many times have you as of a coach sat down and said, okay, you know what? This athlete is number one returner, healthy. He or she should win the title. And through a lot of reasons, doesn't, or, you know, this team is super strong. We're going to, we're going to be in the hunt for the title and you don't win it. They are special. No matter how many 12 in a row, I don't care. The 13th is the hardest one to get. <laughs> No, you're right. Take, take, you're right. It's, it is special. Take care of that specialness when it happens. Absolutely. Man. Yeah. Because I always say it's success is a Venn diagram with three circles. There's coaching, there's athletes, and then there's the running gods. And, and sometimes you got two of the three or, you know, thumbs up, but the third one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A different finger up. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's very, uh, you know, there, there's always luck in every single win. I mean, uh, you know, I, I can remember this is, this is a great, Mamie Rollins used to coach at Ohio state. Um, she was, they were going to win a big 10 title. If they, if they won the mile relay, it was in Indiana. If they, I think it was Indiana. They won the mile relay, uh, women's, it was probably mile relay back then. Then they won the big 10 title and a fan on the last straightaway, a fan walked across the track and knocked her anchor over. It was close enough to the finish line. The baton rolled across the line. And so you can't finish the race without a baton in your hands. So they were disqualified. So oh, they would have been Big Ten champs, but for that. So, <laughs> I mean, wow. close. So, yeah, I see stuff like that all the time. So you never, yeah, you always think, uh, enjoy it while you have it, because you never know what's, there's a million things that yeah. go wrong with that. Running gods don't like you, you're in trouble. I love that you had five All-Americans the first year at Drake, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is easy. <laughs> it's only yeah. going to get better. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's it's a struggle. And so, you know, I was at Drake a couple of years, and we had we had good teams. I mean, we had a – I had a six-foot high jumper. I had a um, – Alicia Almerson ran 1620. I'm, I, I can't, it's so long ago, I can't remember. But good. You know, this is – we're talking about 1982, 83. Uh we had a, four, a women's four by four that ran 340. Uh, we had, I had, I had an athlete indoors. She was second in the nation twice uh, in the 400. So she was, so we had, we had a lot of, a lot of talent, but um, I just was ready to move on. And having run at a big 10 school, I wanted to go to a big 10 school. 
And so a coach called me, well, and this, the story goes, the same AD that called me in her office to say, uh, would you like to be head coach? Oh, probably two years later, she said, she asked me into her office and I thought, what is it now? Because I could always tell by her tone of voice, it wasn't good. Uh, she said, what is this about you going to Northwestern? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so she said, yeah, the, the coach at Northwestern called me today and said, he wants to get you a, a, a coach in there. And I said, I don't know anything about it. I know nothing. And um, I found out later that Dave Nielsen, my teammate, was at Wisconsin. He'd actually accepted the job and then uh, took a job at Idaho State. And so he ended up uh, saying, well, we should call Jim Canadel, that uh, he might be interested in doing it. And so that's how, that's how Mike Muska got in touch with me. But, uh, and so I, I, he called me later that day and I said, yeah, I heard you owe me for the job. It was kind of interesting. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I took the job in Northwestern. It was, um, it was tough leaving. I mean, we had some good women because we had meets. I know Jim Duncan, who was a Drake Realty announcer. We had an indoor meet, I remember that year, the year before, we competed against Frank Savine. Well, now it's called the Frank Savine Invitational at Lincoln. But it was um, a big meet. They had all the best teams in the nation there. And if they had scored the meet, Drake women would have finished second in the nation. The only team that would have beat us was uh, USC. And they were good at the time. Wow. So we had a strong, we had a very good team. But I just wanted to coach in the Big Ten. Uh, and so I, you know, I took the job at Northwestern and uh, Mike Muss was the coach. And we had a good team. Um, in cross country, I think the first or second, I think it was second year, the women finished second in the Big Ten, the men finished third in the Big Ten across country. So this is probably 85. So was there, because Northwestern now is a, I think a women's only cross country. Correct. So was this full men and women and track and field? Yes, yes. Really? Um, yeah, so we had a good team. I mean, we had uh, all Americans in the, uh, four by eight they had a four by eight at nationals good team very good team uh we had well we had three guys that broke 150 and this is again mid 80s uh, mike musco was a great middle distance coach great 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 he did a wonderful job but um but anyway we, we had i mean we had other athletes because we would get football players to come out and i remember there was a oh george what was his last name uh so it's too long ago, i can't remember but we had guys that would place the big 10 in the 200 in the long jump um we had a guy in the finals of the hurdles, but didn't score any points. So we had some good athletes. When did uh, that change at Northwestern? I think it was 87. They dropped track. Um, For both? I still have, yeah, right around there. Um, but we had men's and women's. D. Todd was the women's coach. John Capriotti uh, from Nike. You might know the name. He was, he was the women's assistant. I was a men's assistant. Really? Um, Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know he's at yeah. Northwestern. I know Kansas State, I think, and yeah, Cal, went, Cal Poly Slow, I think, as well. Pomona. 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 I think. Well, you could be right. It, I it's can't one of those two. Yeah, I, yeah, you I could get be those, right. I I'm say. the worst at those two. I mix well, them up all I, the time. I bet a nickel that I'm right, so okay. uh, I, won't, I won't doubt you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, John was, he was a phenomenal recruiter. Phenomenal. I mean, if I had to say, like, all my career, and you, you know, you've been coaching long enough. Good recruiters are just amazing. They 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 recruit 25 hours a day and they know everyone. And yeah. well, that's John Capriotti. He knew everyone. He was a great recruiter. But he 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 brought in some great female recruits just in two years. He turned the program from one that was like eighth, ninth, tenth every single year into second in the Big Ten. He had a great group. 
And uh, Muska was a good recruiter on the men's side. I know he did a phenomenal job. I mean, we had Tim Phillips was was a 858. Bob Cole was a 151. Um, uh, Steve Miller was had the fastest 3,000 meter in the nation. Um, we had a lot of, I mean, just talent, talent. We had um, Paul Stogren was a 408 mile in high school. We had a lot of good athletes. You know, where the, the track body is uh, appropriately up in arms right now with Central Michigan, William and Mary, Minnesota dropping. Uh, I don't know that we know much history, at least me personally, of Northwestern. Do you know much about when and why? What was the decision at a Big Ten school? I mean, it's interesting. We, you know, a lot of people are concerned that Minnesota of the Big Ten dropped because right. it feels like, well, man, if, if a Big Ten school can drop, who, who am I if I'm in any other conference or any other division? But here we have some historical uh, aspects of Northwestern, a, a great mm -hmm. Big Ten school. Yes. Uh, you know, the um, the very much Ivy League of the Big Ten, if you will. They're, you know, the academics are amazing. Uh, but they dropped quite a while ago. Do you know much about why and how that decision well, came about? I was actually there and I, I, part of the reason you have to go back into the early eighties when Northwestern lost 33 big, 33 games in a row. So they had the worst record football record. I'm talking about football record in the nation. Back in the eighties. I remember that in the, I was up there. I graduated in 94. I remember I was in the uh, Chicago. I went to an engineering school in Chicago in 95 and I remember Northwestern was on a, a terrible streak at that point as well. So this was before Time that, so several long streaks. Oh, yes. that's not good. Yeah. Okay. And so Doug Single was the athletic director back then. Doug Single came from Stanford. Um, another name you might recognize and um, oh, I'll think of her name. She's the athletic director at Sandy Barber, athletic director of Penn State now. Uh, she was this associate AD. We had a great staff there, but Doug Single was a, uh, I'm trying to think how to say this uh, nice. He he was he, he was a man with a vision, but he had his toes in other people's business. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but he was a great idea. But I, I I can still remember the the day he came in. Um, he talked talked with Mike and I and said um, we 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 want the football program to be good, but we don't have the money to do it. So where we're going to get the money from is from you guys, and so we, they dropped um, dropped the program. They let anyone that was in, I think eighty seven if I remember they dropped the program. They let anyone on scholarship keep on scholarship, but they took all the budget and put it in football, and so that's where they ended up uh, starting to develop the program. It got a little better, but it was a slow process. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, really, not until recently when Fitzgerald took over as the football coach have they been good i mean like i said in when i was 60s, there in 90, yeah. yeah i mean um, when i was like I, said, I was there in 94 and i remember it was a perennial we the my fraternity used to go and work to get you know clean to sell right mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff um uh, the, the brochures or whatever pamphlets um but i remember they were just you know they were the notorious oh and ten one and nines whatever uh and then when pat fitzgerald i think his name is pat fitzgerald took over yeah, as head yeah, coach yeah. Mm -hmm. here in the 2000s now they you know they're bowl eligible almost every year i guess the, i guess that's the, that's the barometer for football right now right if, if you can get 500 six wins then you get to go to bowl game and it feels like a successful year yeah, isn't yeah. that crazy we the, the, people <laughs> talk about um I ribbons know. for every kid trophy for every kid and yet here we are if you can just get 500 if you can, 
you'll get reward you'll get rewarded uh air quotes there with a uh, a bowl game like th- there's yeah. mediocre there, there's mediocrity that's what we're fighting for that's why we're dropping track uh across the nation so we can support teams to win six games and go to a bowl game and lose money at that bowl game by the way you're exactly right you're exactly right i mean i couldn't agree with you more i think the the direction of big time sports is going the wrong long way i mean that's why you're seeing like I, I went to Iowa, so they dropped men's and women's swimming. I think men's and women's tennis, and they dropped men's gymnastics. And the reason is they spend money like they're it's going out of style, and they don't save anything for a rainy day. And so as a result, it's killing them. Uh, anyway, Gary Gary Wilson of University of Minnesota fame was on the no podcast, uh, the meeting of the unknown minds. And uh, he was talking about, you know, it's going to save, I think it's something like 3 million or something like that. And, uh, you know, they're at a $70 million deficit. And uh, Vin Lanana had a good response to that. He goes, 3 million. So what? On 70 million exactly. debt, 3 million. But, uh, but Will, Gary Wilson said, hey, man, let me see your budget. I can find you more than 5 million like that. <laughs> you know, uh, hotel nights on home game. I mean, there's just so. You're exactly right. So, so, so many uh, just ill spending and, and these ADs, we've had some conversations in the past. I think Ron Alice and I talked about this as well. These ADs are now quote unquote CEO ADs. But when you think about it, it's like, well, okay, well that means you're a business acumen and you, you know, you know how to um, balance the books and things like that. Well, it's, yeah. you're, you're not, you're, you're a, you're not a CEO. You're a, um, who was the guy, the, the famous CEO, uh, I think he took over one of the maybe Kellogg's and, um, name was Jack and um, maybe Ford, one of the, he was, he was called Chainsaw Jack because <laughs> his, his, his way of making a company back profitable was take over a CEO slash the employee, you know, yep. lay off X amount, cut spending. And it's like, oh, you're not really, you're not building, you're not, you're not, you're not building growth. You're cutting the growth. And that, yeah. that, that doesn't grow. And that's what we seem to be doing in athletic departments. Now we're, we're cutting to grow in this football, which, I mean, there's 10 schools at this point that can win the national championship. There's, you know, 20 schools maybe that turn a profit. It doesn't feel like we're growing our academic, don't forget, even though this is athletic tomorrow, these are academic institutions. It doesn't feel like we're growing academic institutions here. We're, we're slicing and dicing our way for a, a prize that's unwinnable for 99.9% of us. You know, I've I've also thought that, and I've expressed this opinion for five or six years, is there needs to be a Division One AA or something of that nature. That to, to think that the Loyola's and the Illinois States and the Eastern Illinois and the Western Illinois can compete with University of Illinois and University of Iowa and University of Michigan, they can't. It's not even it's it's not even fair to think that each Big Ten school last year got fifty four million dollars from TV revenue. And how much did Loyola get when they won? Uh, they finished fourth in the nation. I think they probably got maybe a couple million, maybe, maybe. But they had to split a lot of that up with the Missouri Valley. And how much TV money do they get every year? I'd, I'd, Loyola would be lucky if they got 100,000. I don't think they do, but they'd be yeah. lucky if they did. Yeah. Right. And so here's, you got 54 million and you've got, it's not fair. And, and, and what's happening at like your central Michigan, they're trying to join the big boys. They can't, it's just not, that's unrealistic. And so I really think they need to, right now it needs to happen. They need to have the power five and whatever the 
other five are, and then just cut, make a line in the sand. You know, it, it, so that was brought up by um, uh, Gary Wilson as well in that podcast, which again, if you, I, I'm so thankful that you had listened to us here at Gill Athletics on the Connections podcast. There's a lot of great uh, coach focused podcasts out there. Uh, and one of them is the meeting of the unknown minds uh, hosted by a good friend, Matt Eschi at university of Alabama. Yeah. I know yeah. Well. yeah, it's yeah. Great. yeah Iowa grad. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know you were an Iowa grad. So as soon as you said that, I was like, Oh, I got to text him. Let him know. I have a, I had an Iowa grad on. He'll be, he'll be, uh, he'll be stoked. He's um, in my book too, but. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, perfect. Uh, but it, it's interesting. Um, I lost my train of thought there, but uh, just. Oh, the meeting oh, of the oh, minds. Oh, but power five. So Gary brought up, he's like, if you, you know, the power five is talking about, has talked about for years about branching off doing their own thing whatever yada yada i believe and i'm probably pair i'm definitely paraphrasing maybe misquoting him a little bit but he was talking about if we do like we do not we as track people do not want that to happen because if if the power five breaks off in their own thing and there's no rules anymore well you know ncaa has minimum sport rules and track is one of the best for them right six sports if they don't cut them um but you you know, track will be gone if the power five breaks out. It'll be a football and basketball yeah, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe baseball division yeah, at that point. So yeah. we, we need to be together and have division one. You're right. I think, um, I think it's about a, a definition of what success is, right? So in football, if you're not 500 and not going to a bowl game, that's not successful. And some uh, places, a, a lot of places, too many places, it's not successful if you didn't win the national championship, which again, there's maybe 10 teams, maybe 20 at the, in the odd yeah. year, right? Uh, but we have to define success differently, much like in track and field. Uh, it's not always, a, it, it is not a failure necessarily if your kid exactly. doesn't win the title, conference nationals, whatever, if you don't uh, qualify X amount of people uh, for nationals. That is a goal to strive, but the sport and what we're doing as coaches is much bigger than that simple X and O of, oh, All-American or not All-American or top five trophy or not top five trophy. It's much, much bigger. There's so many people out there, uh, CEOs, business owners, teachers, firemen who got their confidence to do what they do because of a coach in track and field. They, they, they achieved success. They weren't the number one runner, but they're like, you know what? I went from uh, gosh, we had a guy on the podcast. He, he, his very first day of cross country, he was dead, not just dead last at practice. Like there was a, a distance between him and the next person. And because coach um, encouraged him and believed in him, he kept, he, he came back the next day and he kept working and kept working. And eventually this guy went on to run in college and became a college track coach. I mean, what more? There's so many stories like that of people and coaches and their effectiveness, uh, effective to their lives. That uh, if we just go down to just dollars and football and basketball, well, exactly. well, then then that that's what I thought. That's what the NFL and NBA and MLB was supposed to be for, not student athlete academic institutions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm gonna step off my soapbox. Sorry, <laughs> you, you got me going. Um, maybe rightfully so again, because we're in a time period right now, uh, for track and specifically collegiate track and field that we have got to band together and fight together for the greater good. Cause we have so much good in this sport and with our coaches. Uh, okay. So you're at Northwestern. They dropped. That's where we, that, see, you got us started on this. You went to Northwestern and they dropped. Uh, so take us through what happened, uh, after Northwestern and let's, let's keep moving forward. 
Well, I went down the road. Uh, Loyola is actually two blocks north of where I'm sitting right now. So we live by Loyola. Um, Gordon Thompson was there. There's, you've seen old YMCA type of gyms where they have a, a, a circular oval, like an oval around the top of the basketball court. I don't know if you've seen, they have a lot. They had a, uh, we had one in my junior high and high school and it had one at Simpson actually, exact same thing. But it was just a flat surface and that's where they put bleachers up during basketball games. Mm. And so what we did was co-opted it more or less, um, built a board track. So on the, on the, straight away you just had flat you just got two by sixes i can't remember two by fours with two by sixes and and just put plywood down on it right against the side on the corner and we nailed the plywood to the bleachers and made that as the bank around the corner and so we had a track that was 12 wow. and a half laps to a mile um and we literally built it out of uh, you know there must have been 150 sheets of plywood, four by eight sheets of plywood. But I mean, that's where we ran, did workouts indoors. And you know, in the Midwest, I mean, most of your season is indoors. But Gordon just, he, he I didn't do it, Gordon did it. Uh, but I helped him build the track and we, we had workouts. But we would have so many athletes running on the track, literally, it would be a continuous line all the way around the track. So we would have the men, there'd be like, 10 or 12 men, they would take off and the women would be on their tail. And so there would be runners all because it's only 12 on a flaps, which is probably 125 yards around. So we have 125 yards with the runners. And they just be going this. You had to jump to the outside so that the runners could keep going as you circle behind. So it was like a how would I describe it? Like getting on a merry-go-round. That's how I describe it as. We had great workouts up there. Um I mean, I, I remember Eddie Sloak timing him. He ran a, he did a workout. He ran a 450 mile, two minutes rest. Then he ran 440, 430, 420. He ended up running a 412 his last mile on that track. I mean, that was amazing, amazing, amazing. So Eddie was a great runner, uh, sub four minute mile. But, but Gordon developed, he did a wonderful job. I mean, it was a donating program and he made him a power. Uh, we used to have some great battles with Joe Piani at Notre Dame. Uh, I mean, Joe always seemed to get the better of us, but it was close. Uh, Joe had some great runners, but uh, Gordon did a great job. And that was a good experience. I, I I worked with, but we had to do stuff. You know, you think of, I don't know if you were ever like this at Troy or any of the other places. We used to high jump and we only had one section of a high jump pit. So what you had to do was, and we used, <laughs> we used old uh, volleyball standards put a cross more and I fashioned it so you could, so you could attach a cross more, it wouldn't come off. And then we would uh, put the pit in the right place and they would high jump into the pit. It was only one section of pit. So if you missed the pit, you were dead. Uh, we used to throw the shot in the balcony. There was a uh, visitor's balcony of the swimming pool. That's where you threw the shot, but it was probably eight feet wide. So if you threw it off, the shot went into the pool and it was a water polo pool. And so the shot would go all the way down to 12 feet. And so the shot putter had to dive into the pool, bring the shot up, and then we go back <laughs> to practice. So that's how loyal it was. We had to improvise so much, so much. We weren't uh, that bad at Troy, not, not far off, but we that high jump example is spot on. I used to coach at De La Salle in the Chicago Catholic League. Oh, oh yeah. And 
and I've it was before we it, well, it was before we had the indoor track that that came yeah yeah they they when i left they decided to do an indoor track yeah um but no this was all hallway stuff and uh cafeteria and we again i mean perfect ex example of that was literally one section of high jump pit i don't even know if it was high jump to be real it could have been like an old wrestling mat or something i don't know but mm -hmm. one little section and a pretty good high jump we had a six four six five you know high yeah, jumper yeah, there yeah. uh yeah. you're right you gotta you gotta square that bad boy up right and don't do anything different do the exact same thing you just did because if you miss yeah you're d bad news <laughs> Yeah, bad, bad. But news. we, but we had a track meet there uh, against DePaul, and Dave Delbick, the current coach, he ran there. He was NCAA champion in the two hundred, so he ran on the track. So we had NCAA champion there, but he fell in the race. I remember they never came back. <laughs> but he, if you ever talk to Dave Delbick, he he might remember the race, but I remember it really well because he just skidded on his chest. I bet he skidded ten, uh, ten yards. On plywood. Yeah, yeah. And he's a tall guy. He, when he went down, boy, he went down. So yeah. I still remember that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's another thing, too. Uh, people don't realize, I remember going to nationals in Detroit in early 80s. That was a, it was a Joe Lewis. I don't remember where it was at. It was the Silverdome. But anyway, the tracks were made out of wood. Mm -hmm. And so you would wear short spikes, quarter inch pin spikes is what you'd wear a lot of times. And I can remember a runner from Southern Illinois falling and they were picking splinters out of his chest for like half an hour. It was, that's, that's the old days, but that's why when kids uh, complain about what they have now, it's like, you don't, you don't know what it was like. We, we had uh, the same thing. I'm, I'm not that old. I'm 44, but in yeah, Alabama, I'm a 68. <laughs> yeah. Uh, growing up in Alabama, running high school track there for indoor, same thing. We only had one indoor track in the whole state. And it was in a barn. It was the old plywood, you know, um, track and, you know, no yeah. rail on the uh, fifth, fifth lane or fourth lane, whatever yeah. it was. So sometimes people would fall. I mean, literally, yeah, it seems literally. comical. People would mm -hmm. fall off. Uh, same thing. If you fell, oh, you were picking splinters out <laughs> for days. So when I got to Gill, because that was my experience, you know, of running track in high school, and then I coached, so I got to go to some of the best facilities around Clemson, um, yeah. uh, back then University, of, not that University of Florida would have said their indoor facility back then was one well, of the best, but it was nice. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. And so when I got to Gill Athletics and uh, city of Birmingham was bantering back and forth of having an indoor mm -hmm. facility, which spoiler alert now became the Crossplex, it was my mission my sole mission was to make sure that was a gill facility because that was like <laughs> that was my home track i was like this this track is, is quote unquote not supposed to be in alabama so mm -hmm. it was uh, it was mission critical for me as like okay we're gonna upgrade from the barn in decatur where we used to run we're gonna have this amazing hydraulic you know ncaa That's worthy beautiful. facility i was like we're getting it and and that's why i call it my home track even though i you know i've never run there and never yeah, coached there yeah. i love that facility because running on boards is for the birds <laughs> yes it is and and yes, running on uh 12 12 and a half laps to the mile track is for the birds my man holy cow i mean i love that you did what you had to do i i yeah. mean that's better than nothing but that is brutal but I, but i always think that experience prepared me for any adversity down the road when i was at I mean, after I was at Loyola, I went to, to University of Illinois at Chicago, mm -hmm. and that's where I spent the bread of my career. But it was, we had a pole vaulter, my, one of my first years of pole vaulter, we, we didn't have any pole vault pits. So uh, I would go to high schools and get 
they'd have single sections of pit, you know, a pole vault pit. So you could see the big section, three sections, the apron up front. And, and, and they would get, you know, one would get ruined. And so they, they'd buy a new one and they had sections just sitting there. So I'd go around to schools and ask. So we had, I, I bet you from four high schools, I had sections of pits. And then I ordered the, the top, the cover pad. Mm-hmm. And it worked out fine, but it would, certainly wasn't uh, ideal. And then I used to go to high schools and I would say, do you have any poles that are big and you'll never use again? And I remember, um, I think it was, one of the Plainfield schools, I think we're Jake, um, who's a pole vault at North Central? Jake Winder. Winder. Mm-hmm. He had some huge poles because he was a good, high, but they were never going to use them again because he was too big. And so we used to borrow poles from high school for my vaulters because they were bigger kids. Right. And that's where you saw, uh, if you ask me how many poles I bought, maybe eight or 10 over 21 years, right. but I bet you we had... 40 or 50 poles, uh, you just get here and there and whatever. So we, you know, we get it done, but you know, so I just assembled a, a pole pit out of bits and pieces. Uh, we built a runway, you know, people at university of Chicago, they had the facilities build them a runway. Well, it's a nice runway. Uh-huh. I built a runway. Uh, and so we hooked it together just with, you'd overlap the sections, you drop a pin in it to keep them together. And then we, uh, we'd roll a runway down and, you know, so I had to do all that stuff. I had to, I would get busted schools that had a broken standard. I would get, and they were Gill's standard too. They were no, I, no offense. They were good, but they got busted because they got knocked over in the wind and it bends them. And so I, I would tell the school, I'll take it if you'll let me put it back together. Cause I didn't have a budget for stuff like that. There's not a million years. And so I learned from a young age to be able to do stuff like that. It stunk, but that's the way it was. So, uh, I would, I mean, I bought many, many items from Gill, many, 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 but we just had to improvise. That was the reality. And if you ask me how much I spend every year out of my own pocket, easily a thousand dollars. Out of pocket, yeah. Easily. Uh, You know, it's just UIC wasn't when I started, you and I could have been on the cross country team, and that's not a compliment to either of us. (laughs) Yeah, right. I was about to say, wait, are you sure? <laughs> yes, no. uh, but it, but you know, I, I built it up until we were a respectable program. But we uh-huh. we just didn't have a budget. Um, you know, I was talking. Who was I talking with the other day? Someone from Indiana, and they said, "Well, we have um, like forty three academic advisors in the department." Well, we we had we had one, and so you know, it's like wow. this is this is like apples and oranges. You know, a comparison. And so, you, you know, you, but you just deal with what you have. And so that's the way it is. But uh, I think that's the thing that I learned more than anything else was, yeah, it's yeah, bunch is nice. But see, that's what Big Ten schools, like Randy Hassenbank, who's at Iowa now, was at Loyola. Um, he said he couldn't get used to being in Iowa because they had so much money. He didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, they, they said, you don't do that. We have someone else to do it. And that's, mm-hmm. see, we were guys that did it. Uh, you know, that was the. That was reality, but so what? What led you go from Loyola to UIC? I mean, you know, they're fairly they're the same area and mm-hmm. same uh, closest to budget and those kind of things. What what mm-hmm. made you go down to to UIC? Well, just I was assistant at Loyola and I, I could be head coach at UIC, and it wasn't it, it wasn't a good program by any stretch of imagination. They only had cross country. They were one of the schools that dropped track, 
And I, when I got the job, I talked to the AD and he, he told me we would start track down the road because it's hard to just be a cross country program to be any good. Kids just won't show up. Um, the, the, the women's coaches at Northwestern have done a phenomenal job because they still only have cross country. But um, I, I, I was really in, I thought this could be better. Now I never expected a Texas A&M or Auburn or Allen. I knew that wasn't gonna happen. But I mean, we could be competitive, competitive. And we were down the road, we ended up winning the Chicagoland Championship, which North Central would always win. We actually won it. And I was, that was like the, one of the proudest moments of that. That's the same conference as North Central? No, no, no. Uh, they have the Chicago land. This is all the Chicago area schools. But North so, Central was in it. Yeah, in the, yeah, the Chicago land. You beat land. North Central. Yeah, yeah. Th that's a feather in your cap right there, my friend. Holy yeah. cow. Ain't, ain't many people can say that. <laughs> Holy but, cow. Uh, but it was, but I mean, so we could do decent, but, you know, it was always like you were, your hands were tied together. You were, you were just, you were lucky if you could get this or that. And, um, so it, 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 was a, it was a struggle, no question about that. But it was, you know, I, I was thinking we talked earlier about providing opportunity for athletes. That's what it's all about. Mm. I mean, you get so many kids that, you know, I had a kid from Matt Saluski was from um, Crystal Lake South. Came, he, he walked in my office one day with his grandfather. He, I said, how fast do you run? He said, 158. Now, you know, if you were at Texas A&M, they go, well, see ya. <laughs> they wouldn't talk to you. But I said, sure, 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 that'll be good. He ended up running 149, 70. So he did good. Wow. Uh, kids like that. I mean, you know, kids are, but I think some of the proudest things are the, the, the kids that, um, you know, we, we had guys that were, Oh, just, I would say like a 10, 20 high school two miler. And they ended up running like 1503 and a 5k. It's not, it's not great by any stretch, but they got better and they, yeah. now they're, they're coaches themselves. And so I think that was probably the biggest reward of coaching at UIC is you developed kids. You actually could say you developed kids because you had to, you'd have a choice. You didn't have state champions. You didn't have this or that. You had to make kids who were, you know, all staying cross country to finish 24th. You had to make those into good kids. And I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of kids that were just like that. Brian Dink and uh, Kyle Hauser were in high school. Oh, they were okay, but they were dominant in the, in the conference down the road. So it was nice to work with guys like that. And, uh, you know, that's what I had. And Tess Earhart was a, a female from, and you had to coach men and women. It wasn't, a, you know, you coach men, uh, you, you coach everyone. Uh, Tess was a great, great runner. She was a conference champion two years in a row. She was uh, all regional two years in a row. Uh, she was a good runner, but she really developed. And I, I think that was some of the greatest rewards seeing athletes running times far beyond what they had done in high school. So I enjoyed that. Is US, UIC's, that's where you retired from, correct? Yes. What, what, what led, uh, you know, I hope to one day, looking at my 401k, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I'd like <laughs> to retire one day as well. Uh, it seems like, it'll, you know, I'm 44, so if I double that, maybe by 88, maybe if I do twice <laughs> as much as what I've done so far. Um, what led, you know, as you're looking at retiring and obviously it, at least from appearances, it looks like you're in good health and good faculties. I mean, it seems like you can go coach right now for crying out loud. What, what led to retirement and how did that decision come about? Well, you know, uh, I, I think as you, as you get older, I always call it the BS factor. You're, you're, there's a BS meter that goes off and it goes off much quicker as you get older. 
and I think, you know, not that it doesn't go off at your age, but it just like, it's instantaneous. You hear BS and you just, nope. And I think that was, it was frustrating because at UIC, there wasn't enough support to be a successful program. I, I, I never had dreams that we could be, you know, national caliber or anything like that. But I think the AD didn't appreciate, he didn't expect more from me, but I expected more from myself, but he wouldn't give me the opportunity to be better, to be, you know, always first or second in the conference meet. Um, I, I mean, we, we would do well in cross country. We'd always be in the top two or three, but I couldn't beat the Butler universities of the conference. I couldn't beat the Loyola universities of the conference. It was, we, we could always be there, but I just couldn't do it. And it was tough. And so, you know, I always thought in track being a city school that we could have attracted a lot of kids from city areas, but he, he wouldn't allow scholarship money to be used for track athletes. And it's like, so that's when we won the, the Chicago land. It was like amazing. I mean, I, I had a kid that was from, um, where's he from Marist? Yeah. Who was Chicago land champion in the hammer. He, he, he'd never thrown the hammer before, but I taught him to throw the hammer and he was struggling. So you get kids that would develop. Um, you know, I had a kid I saw in gym class one day I was walking through the gym and he was probably about six feet tall, I'd say, uh, stuffed the basketball. I thought, damn. And, and so I, I got him to throw the, the weight and the hammer and he was conference champion. You know, it's like, and we're not in the SEC, I understand that. But I mean, relative to where we're at, that he, we were doing good. But if I could have had a little money to attract people because he ended up quitting because he had to get a job like so you'd lose kids and that was a frustrating thing that you potentially be good but you couldn't yeah uic could be i don't want to call it the hidden gym because it's right there but i mean it's 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 set up to be really like you could be a super solid team you'd need probably a some kind of indoor train well you know gately park is uh, opening up soon uh so that could be a potential but um but it it's could awesome. be a it could be a real solid mid-major the, school really could it could be a uni t- you know northern iowa exactly. which, you know, that's, super a, that's solid. a good comparison absolutely location um yeah. the way the way the academics are set up it could be super solid absolutely yeah yeah because academically i mean when i started I, I would never name who it was but i, I got in 15 acts that's all low the bar was at the time but now but towards the end if you didn't have a 21 or 22 boy that was a stretch to get him in now i know basketball got him in but i mean track didn't get him in um and, and it's academically it's become much much that they have a great president at uic now uh-huh. uh, michael um uh, greek name i can't think of it but anyway they, they have a good good program and i think they could be um you know a, a, a program that's constantly at the top of the conference meet and it would be it represent them well and it's you know you get minority kids that would represent the school well because that's what the school's made of because uh, we had every ethnic you, you name it, we had at uic well that's so what we, i thought we, with with the cps schools the catholic league school i mean you've got a great mixture i, yeah. I mean top to bottom on athletes everybody i mean yeah, a yeah. great, great area. I always thought Chicago itself is, uh, for um, high school could always be uh, a lot better. But uh, it, Catholic League was always pretty solid. Public school, a lot of um, a lot of lack of facilities there. I think at least when you know when I coached back so. in the uh, so. mid nineties no. there. Yeah, but there was always great athletes. I mean, there was plenty of kids going to Big Ten football and basketball. I mean, there's 
especially basketball. Holy cow. I mean, that is the basketball capital, but um, yeah. great, great athletes there. Well, so you went into, ret- uh, you retired, you didn't go into retirement, you retired. And maybe here lately, you've, uh, you, you decided you can't get enough of track and field. Uh, so you decided to write a book. Tell me about this book. This is interesting. Well, you, you know, it, it all started, when I think back, uh, John L. Parker, everyone has probably run, read, anyone who's distance runners run, read Once a Runner. Um, that book inspired me a lot. It was, you know, if, if you ask me if I've read it 10 times, so I'm sure I have. Uh, whenever you needed inspiration, I would read the book because there were a lot of days that you were down as a coach. You thought, read this, it'll, it'll inspire you. So I did. Um, but I was always a good, one of the things that I prided myself on when I was coaching was writing good recruiting letters. You know what a recruiting letters is. And, and I think for kids, they don't realize that they're not the only one you've sent a letter to. You send hundreds of letters out. But I always made sure to tailor a letter specifically. I always had one paragraph in every single letter tailored specifically to that person. And so I, I can remember sitting next to Mark Burns many times at the state meet, and we'd all be writing little notes in our programs. about. And so I would write, write things I saw at the state meet. And so I'd write that, and then I'd put that in the letter. Mark was probably doing other things, but I don't – but uh, anyway, I, I would do that, and I, I'd write nice recruiting letters. And one of the things that struck me throughout my career was I always got kids who went to, not to other schools always, but they would show me the recruiting letter, you know, like why they were in college at University of Illinois or University of Iowa. Said so your recruiting letters were the best. Re- they kept them. It was uh, impactful. Yes, yes. Wow. And I saw so, it because I knew how to, I don't want to say capture the moment, but I knew what to to say, and I, I was good at that stuff, so I enjoyed writing. And so that was one of the things I hung my hat on. Last few years of my career, coaching career, I started writing more and more. I had a vision of putting down my experience over 35 years of college on paper. And I started writing, you know, odds and ends. In college coaching, people don't realize how, mu- how many hours you work. Like to say I work 60 hours all the time, oh yeah, all the time. Not sometimes, all the time. You, you just worked a ton of hours. That's the way it was. And so glamorous, it wasn't glamorous at all. Uh, it, it is in retrospect, but it wasn't at the time. I would say it's as glamorous as the 24th mile in a marathon. It's not glamorous at all. That's a good, uh, that's a good comparison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's glamorous when you're done, but it's not why you're doing it. Um, and so I, I started writing and I, I put together stories and, I, and I, I, I was trying to figure out the idea, but I always thought to myself, people are always comparing athletes and arrows. They're always comparing Jim Ryan to Alan Webb. They're comparing Martin, uh, uh, Steve Prefontaine to Dathan Ritzenheim. And I thought that was the basis of my story. I thought comparison between the arrows because people are saying, oh, yeah, we ran this and that. But I was because people say, uh, you know, like Alan Webb ran, he ran 353, I think, in high school. But Jim Ryan ran 355 in high school. Uh, so it's like, so to say one was better, because mm, Jim Ryan ran it on cinders. Right. Alan Webb ran it on artificial track. Uh, Jim Ryan ran it in, well, now I would say crappy Adidas. Now they're, they're good shoes now, but then they weren't very good. I still have them. Uh, you know, there's there's so much difference. So I wanted to compare the area eras. So that's what I did was created two characters. One character 
was was from the father in the late 60s in Iowa City, which is where I'm from. They always say, write what you know about, so that's what I know Bingo. about. So I, I, I created a fictional character, but the story is based on real people. One of the things that I, and John L. Parker is a much better writer than me, but one of the things that I enjoyed about my book is that I use real people. I don't use fictional people. Oh, although the main characters are fictional, I shouldn't say, shouldn't say. But I base everything on real events and real people. So when I talk about, for example, in the book, my character, the father, runs against Steve Prefontaine when he set the American record in the indoor two mile. Now, this character never actually ran an event, but I know exactly what Steve Prefontaine ran. Uh, I know the, the event, the site, the venue, the co other competition. So I use those people and insert my character into the story. And it makes it real because uh, there's people like in my story, Pat Mandera is a great runner from Indiana. Pat's uh, in a Facebook group I'm involved in. But I saw him run many times, although, like, again, it's always the back of his head. But so I insert my character into the story. And so there are, there are events that I put in the book that my character didn't actually finish second or third or fourth or 10th or, but, but I, I say it's fiction. So, cause fiction is like, when you write a book, uh, I'm reading, uh, well, a book now it's, it's World War II is involved in it. That's a fact. There was World War II. There's, so every book has fiction has fact in it. So I just put more fact in it and then use fictional characters. So that was the basis. And his son is from the west suburbs of um, Chicago, fictional school, although you'll know what school if you read it. Uh, and I create a character. And then I go back and forth from the era. So I say when uh, Jim Sr., was a sophomore in high school, and Jim Jr. was a sophomore in high school, and I go back and forth. Oh, and I, interesting. Uh, so it, 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 so you could see just by the story what they had and what they didn't have. Good example is in college, there was no such thing as a rabbit ever, ever. I never had a rabbit. And we would go to meets in the, in the new millennium in North Central, and they'd have rabbits in a race. We never had that at all, so it was... So much, you know, just small stuff like that. Um, the only, I, I ran on a all-weather track twice in my high school career, twice. That's it. Cinder all the rest of the time. And people don't know what it's like to be able to, to, to have to run in lane outside of lane one because it's so torn up. You couldn't run. You couldn't run fast. They don't understand what it's like. And the training tips, the, 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 the what a computer did to this era and so what I do is I jungle, jungle back and forth between the two eras trying to see so people could see like, wow, they had this. And I'm not saying one era is better than the other. I'm just saying you can see the differences between the two. So you, you said you jump back and forth. So you don't tell the it doesn't go zero through 100 pages is Joe Sr. And then 101 through 200 is Joe Jr. So there's actually a like a juxtaposition. Say, uh, I tried that word the other day. I don't Just think I position. Say. Thank yeah. you very much. That's why I don't write. Uh, <laughs> no, that's uh, why I write because I can't, I can't right. say it either. Yeah, good point. A word and always uh, Microsoft Word always uh, auto corrects it for me. That's right. I don't. I don't have a voice auto correct here. Uh, but so you you get the comparison almost through like their high school joe senior did this and in high school cinder tracks uh not fat timing things like that joe jr interesting Do you, how far you mentioned about training and 
uh, you know, shoes and things like that uh, and facilities. How far do you take this story? Do you talk at all about college recruiting in this? A little bit, a little bit. I, I, the first, I wrote so much. I remember I talked with a woman who did my editing and she said, how many words do you have? And I said, 250,000. Just a number, maybe to you too, I don't know. I said, is that a lot? She said, oh my God, if that was a book, it'd be 800 pages. And I said, well, that's kind of long. So she said, you need to make this two books. So I made it two books. Oh. So, so the first one is a golden era because I'm comparing the eras and I want to say, well, which is the golden era? There isn't one. It's like, is was Jim Ryan a big runner? Yes, he was. Is Alan Webb a big runner? Yes, he is. You know, so it, it, it's hard to say if Galen Rupp is better than Frank Shorter. Mm, faster, but is he better? Mm. You know, because um, and then I and then I go through the, you know, some of the, the careers of the athletes just bounce. And so I usually go between cross country seasons and then I go between indoor season, then between outdoor seasons and between summer. So it's like there's four, uh, you know, you bounce back and forth between one and the other. But for example, in high school, we didn't have indoor meets. There was, there was no such thing. So the kids now, they talk about having an inner season. We didn't have anything. We just trained on our own. We did, did, so to say you had computerized training and I had nothing, well, that's the reason why you're better than I was because so the inherently, uh, you know, there's differences. But I enjoy reading some of the past things. Um, you know, people that were great athletes. I remember Mike Durkin, for example, was an Olympian in 76, maybe 82, but they didn't go. Um, he was as a freshman, yeah, he was good, but not that great, but he got way better. Uh, I mean, he was a good miler, but he wasn't a good cross country runner, but he got way, way better. So it's interesting to follow the two careers and see how they go along. But it's, but I use the backdrop for the father of the Vietnam War because some of the political turmoil that's going on now was the same political turmoil that went on then. So it's very, very similar. Uh, and, and I used for the, the sun, the, the technology is amazing. I mean, it's, I compared it to the Gutenberg press. It's like the, to have a computer is, you just can't imagine what differences is made. And I think that's part of what I try and point out in the book. You have advantages that we never had. I mean, you had, you could, you could look up times anytime. Like we could only find times in, track and field news and the sunny des moines register that's the only place you could find them so there was nothing else to find them at all so i, I want to show the differences and i think it 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 shows what how what a great impact ultimately track and field and cross country had on athletes and we talked about that earlier you know it's it doesn't seem like it's that much, but it's it's cross country is and track really are the only sports where everyone plays Everyone practices. They all, they do this exact same thing. And there's not another sport that like even in swimming, which in theory is the same. It's so crowded. It's it's different. It's it's like the Loyola track running around 12 and a half laps, and you've got 125 yards worth of runners all the way around. And I think it's a unique sport. And I I really want to sell the sport to to parents and to show them like this is what it created. A, a kid who the the father was a kid who was like me, not good in football, not good in basketball, not good in baseball. But he could be a runner because he knew what hard work was. And that's all it takes, a work ethic. And I think that's important. The title of the book is called A Tale of Two Runners. 
Golden uh, Era, A Tale of Two Runners, yes. Golden Era, A Tale of Two Runners. And so, and, and there's two, so like part one, part two, volume one, volume two? Uh, the, the volume, the second book is A Long Road Ahead. I'm, I'm, I've written it, but I'm revising it right now. Oh, okay. So that'll be down the road. Well, but, yeah, talk, so talk to us about, you know, um, writing a book seems easy right it's like you you have ideas in your head or maybe if you're writing a uh, biography or an autobiography you think oh well i've lived it so i should just be able to set up my laptop and and just go talk to us about the process like how uh, how long did it take from not only the first nugget of like hey you know i think there's like a, a book here uh when you first started writing to publishing take us through the steps because uh, I, I know I said it seems easy, but I know it's not. No, no, no you're right. Yeah. But it's it's like it's like running a marathon. It seems like, oh, I could do that. But it's hard. And I, I, I would describe it as a marathon. That's how, like I said, I started five years ago and it's just a grind it out. It's like habit, like being a runner. It's like anything else. You just do it, do it. And there's some days I write for 20 minutes and I can't take it anymore. And other days, I'll, I mean, there are days that I've worked five and six hours straight easily. And I literally don't know the time's gone, but it takes a long time to craft a sentence. So it sounds good. So it sounds authentic because all of us have heard people say, uh, what's the final score of your game when they're talking about a cross country meet? Well, they don't know what they're talking about, obviously. And so you turn them off. You need someone who understands the, you know, the, the gut wrenching feeling of 300 meters to go in a mile. Like I'm dead. I don't know if I can make it, you know, type of thing or the, to be nudged by this much in a race, you know, it's like, I, I could, I, I don't want to say the words you're thinking in your head, but we all know what you're thinking. It's like, it, it's gut wrenching. And so to know what um, it's like to run by yourself through the cornfield, through the farmland of Iowa, you know, and cows look, here's what cows do. They watch you <laughs> as you run by. I mean, and that's your excitement as you go along. Or a farmer waves to you like with one finger. You know, that's it, that, that's as exciting as it gets. But that's the reality of it is. And and so you know, I, I I've been there. I understand. Like when there's when you describe stuff, I know what it feels like and how frustrating it is, and you know how fleeting a successful moment is. But I also understand how when you win something, like a mile or a cross-country race split second after the race you're not tired you should be exhausted but you're so elated it's like you feel no fatigue that feel, sensation is something that few people understand and so it's 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 that's what's driven me but it's it's a slow process i mean i some days i'd write one page some days i'd write 10 pages um but it and i knew nothing about what i was doing uh i'm a decent writer but i you have to you know i can't say um, he's an old man, 68. I have to say his, his mustache showed, showed a lot of years on his body. You know, something you have to be creative about how you describe things. And that's what I've learned to do. And I've, I wake up many times at three in the morning and I have a diary I still keep and I'll write stuff in the diary at, at night and I'll use it in my story the next morning because it gets your brain into a, a thought pattern that you end up doing a lot. But it's, but I had no um, experience writing a book. And so I think if you took a hundred people want to write a book, only one person will. I'm not saying I'm exceptional. I'm not, that's not even, I'm just persistent. And that's how I got it done. But it, it takes, uh, you know, you can self-publish, which I did. Uh, there's good and bad. You make more money off it, but you make more mistakes off it, which 
uh, it can happen. But I mean, you, you're you've got to have people who uh, edit your stuff, and that's expensive. I mean, there's a lot more expenses. Like if I've I've spent probably well, I've probably close to four thousand dollars already on my book. Now I'll, I'm sure I'll make it back because I'm a I, I'm a hustler. You have to market your book. Uh, and you know what it's like. You have to market Gill. That's how you get things. So they aren't going to come to you and say, gosh, you got good products. I think I'll use my whole track. I'll be in Gill stuff. No, you got to sell your stuff. And so that's what I do. And I think people have good ideas. There's so many stages of success. It's like you can't just be a good coach or a good writer. You have to be a good salesman. You have to be, you know, those are things. And that's what I discovered. And even now, like, I could on um, yesterday, I spent five hours putting email addresses from college coaches around the nation in my database so that when I want to send them something. So five hours, think about that. Just typing in, looking up, typing in email address. And you know what that's like. You just have to put catalogs, emails. I mean, uh, there's a million things you have to do. And and your goal can never, the, the thing I always say to your goal can never be to make money. Your goal is to write a good book and sell it. That's all. That's all your goal is, because uh, I think a, a coach, honestly, if they just said, "I want to maximize all my athletes," that's my goal. If I win a national title, then I'm doing a good job. Uh, and that's what you, you're trying to look at the product and not the in in pro. You know, I mean, the process, not the end product. Yeah, it's about I the process, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think that's the, exactly what I do. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about, you know, running those Iowa cornfields and your only audience, you know, it's, it's boring. There isn't, it's all corn colored and maybe your excitement is a, there's a cow and he looks at you or the farmer <laughs> waves at you. The skill set though is how do you describe that scene right there? Interestingly enough that people would want to read it. Right. And so mm -hmm. what that is, that's, it's, it's about bringing value what value can I, can I bring? You know, I was not a distance runner at all. Uh, in fact, and I'm a, I am a voracious reader. However, I'm a voracious nonfiction reader, right? I think there's enough crazy stuff in the world. I'm like, I don't need to read star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all that kind of good stuff. However, I do remember oof, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, reading once a runner. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a track geek. So I was like, well, Hey, this book I hear about, I have to read it. Right. Uh, and I and I can still remember uh, the scenes that John L. Parker painted, if you will, about the quarter. I think it was quarter mile repeat. I mean, it was a repeat. I don't remember if it was it quarters like 40 or forty or something. Yeah, yeah, an ungodly number. And uh, you brought up you know Prefontaine sock, and I it made me remember like, oh, there was a a scene in that book where he talked about the blisters and the bleeding and the sock, and uh, you know you can. Like, I, I don't know, did they did they ever make Once a Runner into a movie or a show no, or anything? Okay, no. so I've never seen the scenes mm -hmm. except for right here I in my head, and, and he yeah. did such a good job. So to take, I, I love the idea of this story. You know, you have to have a good subject, right? It can't just be my no. subject's going to be track. Well, get in line. There's a million books about track, good ones, bad ones. Um, but the idea of 
because you know we're always comparing right what's the big comparison right now in basketball jordan and lebron exactly exactly and, and there is no comparison right it's really it's like oh they're they're just different you know jordan mm-hmm. was who he was because of x y and z and if you saw the mm-hmm. uh, netflix special which i thought was awesome yeah uh, that I was, was in, good yeah i was in chicago during that time period so it was you know brought, brought back a lot of uh, memories and emotions uh, and then LeBron, who I'm not, I'm not a basketball fan. So I don't, I don't, I don't know that I've seen 20 minutes of LeBron playing, but I know he's yeah. friggin' awesome. Uh, but it's like, they're, they're, they didn't play in the same system at the same time. And even yeah, if they yeah. did yeah. different positions, different games, et cetera, different time frames. So I love this idea because we have it in track. The, the old guard ran this the new guys and gals run right, this, right. but we've got all these tracks. We've got all this equipment. Uh, we've got, you know, fiberglass and carbon vaulting poles. Well, they did this on steel and bamboo. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, they're, they're both, both the generations are awesome. They're just different. So mm-hmm. there I think is the uniqueness in the story. Mm-hmm. And when I found the story, what immediately attracted me to it, the, the, the subject of it was, Oh, here are two, similar they're distance runners their father and son doing the same activities just in majorly different time frames and so they've got different concerns and advantages and disadvantages etc uh, right exactly yeah i i love this storyline man so how, how did you this might be a dumb question but i'm going to ask it anyway so how did you come up with the title of it as you were writing it um Again, I know that's kind of a dumb question, but I'm gonna let you answer oh, it. No, but that's it's hard because you know you think of a lot of. I mean, it was comparison of errors. That's the that was behind my story. So I thought, okay, what? And I I thought at one time the golden era, but it's like, but I don't want there to be the golden. I want a golden era. So it's like eh, it could be this one, could be this one, and that's what I wanted to do. And I think it's because I'm so old. Uh, you know, you can, you you won't like to compare. And I hear kids all the time say, well, Alan Webb ran 353. It's like, yeah, but Jim Ryan ran in 1966, maybe. He ran 355. So, it's, you know, it's like he broke as a junior in high school, he broke four minutes a mile. I mean, you know, when I see Donald Sage, who ran at York, great, great runner, he's a, he's a fictional character in my book. Because uh, what, what I do is I use... Like, do, do I use Prefontaine all the time? Do I use Jim Ryan all the time? But there's also athletes like, in my book, it's Daniel Page, and his name is Donald Sage. I checked with him to see if that was okay, because I don't say anything untoward. It's all, you know, clean stuff. And so that, that's, but it makes the story interesting because you're using real events, uh, you know, like the, the coach at uh, Michigan, I don't know if you know, uh, Ronnie Warhurst, used to coach him and could he uh, he's it's ronnie hurst in the book so because uh, there's he's a colorful character i'll put it that way so i use colorful colorful lines but i didn't want to actually say that he said that because he didn't and so those are the people that if they have a line then i make them fictional but uh, but i like the i like it because it's real events that happened i mean craig version did i run against Craig version many many times uh, again i only saw the back of his head uh, so that type of thing is good, but it's, it's been a fun process. I, I enjoyed it as much as coaching. I can honestly say that. Is that it's right? It's a worthy activity. and keeps me in the frame. Yeah. Hey, that's exciting, man. I love, you know, to me, life is all about value. Uh, in the private sector, you know, when we're looking at new equipment or what equipment and all that kind of stuff, it's about, well, what value can we bring in that equipment that 
someone's going to be willing to pay for it, right? I mean, it has to be paid for so we can keep our people employed and mm-hmm. uh, keep doing this year after year and serving coaches year after year. So when you're writing a book, it's the same thing. It's like, well, what value can I give? And I, I, I just mm-hmm. love, like, I, I almost see it as a, a movie, a one-hour TV show, you know, one-off of, of this back and forth. Like I, I, and mm-hmm. almost like, uh, you know, to really like um, sell the difference of you know, like black and white on when you're showing the senior and the, you know, colored when you're showing the junior. Uh, exactly, yeah. I, I think that would just be, I, I, I love this. I can't wait to get a hold of a copy and read this even as a fiction story because you have enough nonfiction in there. I think I'll be, I'll be okay. <laughs> no, you will. You will. You will. Well, where it's can, good, I mean, you'll like it. It's a good story. Awesome. Where, where can we go? If someone's interested in, in uh, purchasing a copy of the book, where, where might they go to, to get it their own copy? Well, if you go to three W's and a dot and then tale of two runners, tale of two runners.com. Uh, it'll be on, uh, on my webpage. And it's uh, I, the, the ebook is out now. The print copy will be out about mid October. One of the issues I had with first time, uh, but it, it'll get out there. And it's, it, it, I've had a lot of uh, athletes uh, probably oh, in, in one week, I probably sold over 50 copies. So uh, I'm sure I'll get a lot more. Yeah. yeah I'm a paper guy. I, I've tried reading. Yeah, I, I'm an iPad guy. I mean, I have iPad, but I can't read on the iPad stuff like that. I, I got it. I still like it. part yeah. of it's tactile, I think, but I just, I love that book. Love the mm-hmm. smell, the pages from the library. I'm a big library guy, but um, I, I just <laughs> yeah, love that. No, I've got two books on the table right here. Well, yeah. uh, a tale of two runner. No, no. A tale of two runners.com or tale. Yeah, right. Tale of two. No, uh, just no, uh, tale that's of two runners. Yeah. Com. Tale of yeah. two runners all spelled out. Yeah. Dot com. Uh, go check it out. I think you'll, uh, I think it'll bring value to you. And you know what? Um, maybe you need some, uh, some escapism right now from uh, what's going on out there and uh, not being able to go to meets and things like that right now, unfortunately. Um, but we're going to get back, which is the great thing. But I think, uh, I also think of, you know, books like this and Once Runner, but uh, definitely a book like this, A Tale of Two Runners. What a great book for like a senior gift you know, kind of a, you know, thank you for what you've been uh, for our program here at the high school level and college exactly. level. What a great, great gift. And uh, always Christmas is around the corner. So, um, you know, if you need your Christmas gift, tale of two runners.com. <laughs> that's the place. That's the place to go. Jim, thanks so much for being here today. I, I love, you, um, you know, after talking to Bob and I called him the uh, you know, Chicago through and through guy, I feel like you are the adopted Chicago guy yeah. through and through, you know, an Iowa city born yeah. and Iowa alum. Uh, but uh, having coached at, you know, so many great schools, uh, I, I did not know about Northwestern. I love that, but Northwestern Loyola UIC. Uh, I just love that you're, uh, you know, you're in our neck of the woods and giving value to people and just so happy that you would join us today and, and share that journey with us. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, I was glad to, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for joining us here on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. Uh, Stay tuned for another great coach. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Ooh, wasn't that fun? Man, that's it, boys and girls. That's a wrap. What a great, great, great time I just had right there. I hope you did as well. If you like what you heard, tell someone else. Best thing you can do for me right now is if you received value, go share this on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Smoke Signals, Morse Code, whatever you're using for your social media text message, old school. Let's do it, man. Really, really appreciate that. If you want to know in advance what the next greatest guest we're going to have, 
simply subscribe right now and whatever you're listening to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, hit that subscribe button and you will be in the know for anybody else. That's it. I'm out of here. Look forward to next time bringing you another great connection with another great track and field coach. Bye-bye.